is Ryan. I want to welcome you to Severn and Merry Christmas Eve, of course. Thank you very much. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we are actually this evening concluding a series we started five weeks ago called The Women Who Gave Us Jesus. And the idea behind the series is that in Matthew's gospel account, before he gives us the Christmas story in which Jesus entered the world, um, he gives us first and foremost the genealogy of Jesus. And that's basically his way of saying that if you want to really understand the meaning of Christmas, and if you really want to understand the person of Jesus, then you have to first understand the family through which Jesus entered the world. And one of the things that's so unique about the genealogy of Jesus is that in a time and in a culture that really only paid attention to the names and the accomplishments of men, Jesus' genealogy includes the names of women, five women to be specific. And for the last four weeks, we've been looking at each of their lives and how they point forward to and kind of shed light on the message and the meaning of Christmas. And so here we are tonight looking at the woman who is literally the biological mother of Jesus. I'm sure you've heard of her before. Her name is Mary. And we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at the moment in her life when she found out she was going to be a mom. So I'm in Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 26 to 38. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I've not been intimate with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's slave, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. This is God's word. So this year, in preparation for Christmas, I, I did something I've never done before. I read the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol. Thank you. I didn't expect a round of applause. That's actually the first book I've ever read. Uh, it's a pretty big deal for me. Um, I'm sure this is the case for you as well. I've, I think I've seen, I was thinking about it, I think I've seen over a half dozen different film adaptations of the book, including A Muppet, Christmas Carol. There, yeah. The Muppets better get a round of applause because that is, and I'm ready to fight about this, that's the best film adaptation there is, all right? I was raised by the Muppets. I ride with the Muppets. Uh, but I wanted to, to read the book this year, and at the very end of that book, if you've seen actually any film adaptation, uh, you've heard what I'm about to read to you because every single movie pulls this quote directly. At the end of the book, Charles Dickens has this to say about old Ebenezer Scrooge. And it was said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us and all of us. <clears throat> So I share this with you because I've been uh, 
January 7th will make 11 years that I've been in ministry full-time, so I preached my fair share of Christmas. A lot of rounds of applause. <laughs> really didn't prepare for that. It's going to be like a two-hour message just because we're waiting for clapping. Um, no, I, uh, I've been in ministry for 11 years, and, and uh, every year Christmas rolls around. Of course, it's heavy on my mind, you know, what I want to do with the Christmas Eve message this year, because I don't like just hitting copy-paste on what I did the year before. And when I read those words from Dickens, I knew that's what I wanted this year's Christmas Eve message to be aimed at, about how to keep Christmas well. And if, you've, if you're familiar with the story, you know that what Dickens means when he says that Scrooge learned how to do that is that he became the kind of person that so understood and embodied the message and the meaning of Christmas that it completely transformed the way that he lived. And it took him from this kind of miserably self-centered old man um, that was cold and callous and moving through life looking for only what he can amass, no matter who that cost, and it, and it turned him into this, this man that was turned out, and he was, he was incredibly generous, and he was kind, and he was a person of greatness, and he was really a life-giving presence to everybody that was in his life. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight, how to keep Christmas well, how to so understand and embody the message and the meaning of Christmas that it transforms our lives. And I don't think there's a better passage in the entire Bible for teaching us how to do that than the passage we're looking at tonight, uh, because I think you could actually make a pretty strong case that no one in the history of humanity uh, kept Christmas better than Mary, because first and foremost, she was the first human being in history to even understand what the message of Christmas is, but here we are 2,000 years later, and it's pretty apparent her life was completely transformed by this. You know, she started off as this teenage Jewish girl living in poverty that conceived a child out of wedlock, and she became this person that was used in an unbelievably powerful way in the advancement of the kingdom of God. She's been a source of inspiration and hope for countless people over the last 2,000 years, and it begs the question, how do you explain that? And the answer I would offer to you is that she understood how to keep Christmas well. And this passage of Scripture is designed to teach us how to do just that ourselves. So how do you keep Christmas well? Based on what I see here, um, we need three things. Three things that are going to serve as what we're going to talk about this evening. First off, we need to understand what the gift of Christmas is. Secondly, we need to understand who that gift is for. And number three, we need to understand how to respond to that gift. So first and foremost, let me ask the question, what exactly is the gift of Christmas? To answer that, I want to look at what the angel told Mary. It says in verse 30, Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Then verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So there's actually three things being said about Jesus and the angel's words there. The first thing uh, is Mary's being told that this child, uh, first and foremost, would be a ruler, that he'd be given the throne of his father, David, which was good news for Mary because she was living in a time when the Roman Empire uh, was oppressing and subjugating her people, the Jewish people. And so for her son to sit on the throne of their forefather, David, meant that this child was in some way, shape, or form going to be a liberator, a rescuer, a deliverer. The second thing that the angel said about this child would have been really confusing to Mary because the angel further said that the reign of this child would never end. 
which wouldn't have made any sense to Mary because one thing that every king in human history has in common is eventually they stop being a king because they stop living. But the third thing that the angel says about this child explains how the second thing could be true. It's because according to this angel, the child that Mary was carrying would be God. In verse 35, uh, the way my version of the Bible translates it, it, it the angel says the, the uh, Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In this phrase, it says the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. If you look at what the angel literally says there in the original Greek uh, language, uh, that's not what the angel says. The angel doesn't say the Holy One to be born. All the angel literally says was the Holy to be born will be called the Son of the Most High God. It's a really peculiar way to phrase things, but basically what the angel's saying there is that this child would not just be another pretty holy person, you know, somebody that seems a little bit more in tune with the divine or the supernatural. That's not this child's story. What the angel's getting across is that this child would be holiness itself in the form of a human. Charles Spurgeon put this best when he said, the infinite became an infant, that right there is the gift that we celebrate at Christmas. Now, this idea that, that we're walking through is something that, uh, especially if you were raised in church, you probably heard this term before. This is something that Christians sometimes call the doctrine of the incarnation. And this idea, if you take it into really the core of your being and make it the foundation of your life, this has the power to completely transform your life because it can completely rewire the motivation of your heart. Now, to explain what I mean there, let me get a little bit psychological. Every human heart, this is, this is true of you, this is true of me, this is true of everybody that got out of bed this morning, every human heart has some basic motivator that causes us to get up out of bed in the morning and, and you know, go and, and face life. Uh, and according to the Bible, that basic drive is fear. This goes all the way back to something we're told in Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the Bible, where there's this scene where right after sin has entered the world... Uh, we're told that Adam and Eve, when they heard the sound of God approaching, instead of running toward him, they ran away from him, and they hid themselves, and they sewed fig leaves to cover themselves, and the reason they did all this was because they were afraid. And that little story is actually a profound commentary on the human condition. What it's getting across is that because of sin, fear is now the primary motivator of the human heart. And, and to me, this explains everything that we see about human behavior. Everywhere you look, you see this. People are driven by the fear of rejection. We're driven by the fear of failure, the fear of not being good enough, uh, the fear of suffering, the fear of loss, the fear of our own mortality, the fear of the unknown, of being taken advantage of, you name it. Basically, if you look into your heart and you do not see fear in there, then you know, please don't be offended, but according to the Bible, it's because you simply do not have the courage to face yourself. And every belief system, every other religion, all they have the power to do is aggravate that, that fear. Because according to every other religion and belief system, it's kind of the same general story. It's that God is out there somewhere, and it's up to you to reach him. And of course, every belief system tells you how. You know, according to Buddhism, it's the eightfold path. According to Islam, it's, it's the five pillars. According to Judaism, it's the Ten Commandments. Or Confucianism, it's filial piety. Or Hinduism, it's, you know, the karmic cycle of reincarnation. But as different as those sound, really on the surface, they're all, it's, it's basically the same message. They're all fear-based. They're all built on this idea and kind of revolve around this idea that if you do not do enough, then God will not love you or bless you or accept you or save you. Uh, and so in everything you do, there's this constant 
thought, this fear in the back of your mind where you're, you're always left wondering, okay, but have I done enough? And at the end of my life, will I be found to have been enough? And, and Christianity comes along and says something completely unique and completely different than any of those other belief systems or religions because what Christianity is saying is that God has entered into human history. In other words, knowing that we could never get to him, God decided to come to us. And in coming here, he has lived for us. He has died for us, and he rose again for us, also that he could offer us something that is completely unheard of in any other belief system, which is something called salvation by grace, a salvation that does not depend on you or what you do for God, but rather on God and what he has done for you. And so over the years as a pastor, people have heard me talk about this and asked me the question, all right, well then, if Jesus has done everything, what are we supposed to do here? And I love the way that Tim Keller answered that question when he said that when it comes to Jesus, all you need is your need. All you need is nothing, which sometimes, ironically, is the hardest thing for these prideful human hearts of ours to come up with. But according to Christianity, if you and I will approach Jesus with that posture of heart that simply recognizes our need and his sufficiency, then in that moment when we experience his salvation, we can move through life right here and right now knowing that we already have the love and the approval and the acceptance and the salvation of God, and we never need to fear losing it because it depends on Jesus and what he's done for us rather than anything we'll ever do for him. That's what I mean when I say that Christianity, and specifically the doctrine of the incarnation, can completely rewire the motivation of a human heart. So first and foremost, all this to say, the God who is holiness itself has entered into human history in the person of Jesus. That and nothing less is the gift that we celebrate at Christmas. <clears throat> Second question, let's ask, who is this gift actually for? And the answer to that question is all the way at the top of this passage. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So when you ask the question, all right, who's this gift for? The answer according to this passage is Mary. And when you understand the position that Mary occupied in her society, this tells us something incredible about the heart of God the heart that he has for us. <clears throat> First off, what we know about Mary is that she was from a place called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a town with such a bad reputation that when people heard that Jesus was from there, the very first question out of their mouths was, can anything good come from Nazareth? And so for Mary, just being from a place like that was already a strike against her in the eyes of society. Uh, the other thing we know about Mary is that she was incredibly poor. Just a chapter after this, when uh, Mary and Joseph go to dedicate Jesus at the temple, uh, offerings were made that were kind of on a sliding scale depending on the income of the family. And uh, Mary and Joseph, for their offering, they gave two pigeons, which was the offering that was reserved for only the, the absolute poorest of the poor families. On top of that, Mary was incredibly young in a culture that favored age. Uh, this is crazy for me to think about now that I have you know, a daughter that's, that's kind of getting up there now. She's going to be eight in a few days here. Uh, Mary was only about 13 or 14 when all this happened to her, which is just crazy to think about. Uh, that's about how old you were when you were betrothed but not yet married. And then on top of that, most obviously, Mary was a woman. 
in a, in a culture that was incredibly disrespectful and very dismissive of women. And so I, I say this to just kind of help us understand what's happening here. Here you have God announcing something that all of creation had kind of been on the edge of its seat waiting with bated breath to hear. Right, ever since sin broke the world in Genesis chapter 3, you know, all the Old Testament is pointing to this idea, one day God's going to do something. He's not just going to leave us in the dark. He's going to find a way to fix this. Here God is announcing for the first time in history specifically what he's going to do to solve the problem we had no answer for, and he's delivering that news to someone who is in every meaningful way the wrong kind of person. She's from the wrong place, the wrong socioeconomic class, the wrong age, the wrong gender. And so when I was putting this together, you know, the the first thought that came to my mind was, all right, so, you know, let's make the point that God kind of has a heart for the underdog, and God's power always flows most naturally to and through people that are kind of at the bottom of the ladder in the eyes of society, and that's true, and that's great, and you can see that all through both Old and New Testament. However, there's something more going on here something that I suspect is going to hit home for a number of people in the house today. The whole purpose of this birth announcement to Mary is, obviously, God is not just telling Mary what he's going to do. He's telling Mary what he's going to do through her, that she will conceive and have this child. Now, that obviously sounds great to us on paper until you think through the implications of news like this for Mary. Mary, at this point in her life, was betrothed to Joseph. She was not married. And betrothal in that day and age was was a very serious thing. It was a legally binding union between a man and a woman. Uh, It actually required a a divorce to, to separate at this point. It was like marriage in almost every way except one, one very important way, and that's that any kind of sexual activity was strictly forbidden during the betrothal process by Jewish law. And Mary and Joseph honored that law because this text clearly tells us that Mary was a virgin. And so consider what this news sounded like to Mary, right? If this angel's telling the truth, then in a couple of weeks, she would have a baby bump that she was not able to hide. And people in Nazareth would have done the same thing that people have done ever since people have been around, which is run their mouths And sooner or later, that would get back to Joseph. And let me just ask you, how do you think that conversation's going to go? What is Mary supposed to say to Joseph? Hey, um, I figure we should probably talk about this before the big day. You may have heard I'm pregnant, but uh, the good news is I didn't cheat on you. It's a miracle. You know, this is the first and it'll be the only instance in human history of conception through divine intervention I just figured we'd have this exchange before the big day. Anyway, see you at the altar, big guy. No one in their right mind is going to believe a story like this. And so I don't know if you've ever thought about Mary's story this way, but but here's the picture that I'm trying to paint here. This news meant that the relationship that Mary was looking forward to with Joseph was now destroyed. Mary was now, best case scenario, she's going to live out the rest of her days as a single mother in a heavily shame-based society that would never let her up from that. Uh, basically, Mary has just had the life that she planned for herself stolen out of her hands. So summary statement here, Mary's life as she knew it was over. Now, I say this to make the point that, that the story of Mary, you don't really understand Mary's life until you understand this. The story of Mary is the story of a woman who had a perfectly decent life carved out for herself until, pardon the expression, God came along and messed everything up. Now, we can see, benefit of hindsight, all of the amazing things 
that God would go on to do in and through Mary. But in order to do all of that, he needed to lead Mary through an incredibly difficult situation that she would have absolutely never chosen for herself. I love the way John Piper put this in a quote that I came across this week. He said, life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. I wonder if anybody can relate to that. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth, and I would add Mary, is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so here's, here's where I'm, I'm going with this. If as you reflect on 2023, you kind of find yourself thinking, I didn't think I would be here. If you find yourself in the middle of a life that, if you were honest, you wouldn't have chosen for yourself. You know, if right now you're dealing with questions in your life that don't have any easy answers, or, or, or you're dealing with a, a number of loose ends that need to be tied up and you just don't understand how that's going to happen I just want to tell you, you are exactly where Mary was here. And the promise that God gave to Mary is the same promise that he gives to all of us, that he can do unbelievable good both in us and through us as he walks us through situations like that. If we walk through those situations well, the question is, how do you do that? How do you walk through the fire well even before you know how the story's going to end? I want to speak to that finally and lastly by looking at how Mary responds to all of this. She gives us three answers to this question, and I'll just tell you, anybody who desires to have a life-changing, life-giving relationship with God has to do all three of these things that Mary does here. There never has been and there never will be an exception to this. So, so what does Mary show us about how to respond? The first thing Mary shows us we have to do <clears throat> is we have to wonder. When the angel first appears to Mary, it says she's, she, she was deeply troubled and she was wondering what kind of greeting this was. When you and I hear the English word wonder, we think about, you know, like a kid in Disney World that's just kind of, you know, lights are on, nobody's home, taking it all in. It's an emotional thing. The truth is the Greek word used here is exactly the opposite of that. This word wondering was actually a legal term in Mary's day and it basically meant to account or to reckon, to basically to think very deeply and very critically and very analytically. Here's, here's, here's the point. When the presence and the power of God showed up in Mary's life, she didn't turn her brain off, she turned it on. And I, I thought this was worth pointing out because there's a lot of people in our increasingly skeptical culture, intellectual culture, that have this idea that faith and reason are, are diametrically opposed to one another. Like if you're a person of faith, then you're not a person of reason and vice versa. And I'll just tell you, that if, if a relationship with Jesus does not require you to check your intellect at the door, 
If it did, Mary would have never believed this message and it would have never gotten off the ground and out of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. So the first thing that Mary shows us we have to do is, number one, we have to wonder. The second thing Mary shows us in her response here is, number two, we have to wrestle. After the angel explains to Mary what's happening, she doesn't say, you know, she doesn't shrug and say, all right, sounds good. If you were paying attention when the angel first explains what's going to happen, Mary's first question is, how can this be since I have not been intimate with a man? So let me just put it this way. If, if you yourself, or, or maybe even if this isn't true of you, but this is true of somebody that you know, you know and love, if, if you find yourself coming to Christianity and, and your, your mindset is sort of, you know, I like Christianity, you know, maybe not everything, but I can see how on the whole, it, you know, it does good for people, it does good for society, and, and maybe you find yourself, you'd like to be a Christian, but you kind of go back to this idea of, I just, I just can't believe this stuff. I just can't believe that a dead Jewish carpenter came back to life because he was God. I just can't believe in something like the virgin birth. I just want to show you from the Bible here, neither could Mary. Mary couldn't believe this the first time that she heard this. Right? There's this tendency specifically in modern people to look back on people in, in ancient societies, people in the Bible, with this mindset that says, yeah, I, you know, I get how they could believe these things. It was a pre-scientific era, so they were, you know, they were gullible. They could kind of just check their brain at the door and believe all this stuff. I just want to say, if that's your mindset, no one in this room would have had a harder time believing that a child, a human being, could be God than a Jewish person living in the first century. That was deeply offensive to them. It was completely against everything that they'd been raised to believe. And so Mary would have had just as much, if not more, trouble believing this idea as any of us would. But here's the point, and this is what's so admirable about her. She didn't let her skepticism have the final word. She wrestled. And she allowed God to challenge her assumptions rather than allowing her assumptions to challenge her understanding of God. But the third and the final thing that Mary shows us in her response is surrender. And you see this in the final verse, which is the most iconic part of this passage, where we read, I am the Lord's slave, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. <clears throat> Anyone who has ever had or ever will have a life-changing relationship with Jesus has to eventually do what Mary does here. She takes her hands off of her life and she says, okay, God, I trust you. Even if you don't give me the life that I had planned for myself, even if you walk me down a path I would have never chosen for myself, even if following you means at least initially I have a whole lot more questions than I have answers I trust you. Now, maybe somebody hears that and says, hey, that's great for Mary, and I could, I could do what Mary did if I had what Mary had, but I, I don't have an angel showing up in my life speaking on behalf of God. And if that's where your mind goes, I would say that's fair. Right? Probably no one listening to this message has had Gabriel show up in your life and speak on behalf of God. So it's true that we don't have what Mary had, but if you ask me, I think we have something better. See, in Luke chapter 1, Mary was simply told what God would do for her. But here we are all these years later, and we're not just told what God will do for us. We have been shown what God has done for us. We see it clear as day at a place called Calvary. And there is absolutely nothing that will enable you and I and empower you and I to trust God even when we don't understand what he's doing with our lives 
like going back and seeing what he was willing to go through for us. So I'm going to call the worship team up, and I'm going to close with this. This is probably going to surprise you, but I'm going to read an exchange from the movie A Knight's Tale. Anybody seen A Knight's Tale? Yeah, you didn't see that coming on Christmas Eve. A Knight's Tale, if you're not familiar with it, it's, it was one of Heath Ledger's last movies, and it's all about this low-born peasant named William Thatcher who has dreams of being something more, and so he impersonates a knight, and he's a prodigy. He's great at it, and he wins these tournaments, and he catches the eye of, of this woman, Princess Jocelyn, and he falls for her, and he's trying to win her over, and there's this brilliant scene when the two of them are in a, in a church, and I just want to read their exchange to you as we close because... I, I couldn't think of something that, that more perfectly illustrates the meaning, not just of Christmas, but of the gospel. <clears throat> he says to her, Jocelyn, how may I prove my love to you? How? She answered back, do you ask in earnest? He said, yes. She said, if you would prove your love, you should do your worst. Instead of winning to honor me with your high reputation, I want you to act against your normal character and do badly. Lose. He said, losing proves nothing except that I'm a loser. And she answered back, I think this is so brilliant, and I I don't know that you can understand Christmas until you really understand what she's saying here. She says, wrong. Losing is a much keener test of your love. Losing would contradict your self-love, and losing would show your obedience to your lover and not to yourself. And so finally she asked, what is your answer? He replied, I will not lose. And she replied, then you do not love me. Now, right there, the scene ends. And after that, it opens up, and William is at this huge tournament, and the stands are packed because everybody knows his name, and they want to see him compete. And he's in his armor, and he's got his lance, and his team sends him out, and his horse thunders out the gate, and then after a few steps, he just stops. And his team asks him, what are you doing? And he pauses and he says, losing. And sure enough, he lets his opponent charge right at him and he drops his lance, he drops his shield. He's completely defenseless and he allows himself to be publicly humiliated. And when he does that, the princess sees him and you can see it in her face. It just completely captures her and melts her heart because she knew here was a man that actually proved the love that he had for her, a man that loved her enough not just to win but loved her enough to lose. And I say all this to say... Jesus loved you enough to lose for you. Everything about the way that he entered humanity, everything about his life, everything about his death, is the, the story that we call the gospel is the story that God loved you enough to lose for you. And that, at least in Luke chapter 1, that is something that Mary could not have known. She knew because of what that angel said. She knew that her son would be great. She knew her son would be a king. She knew her son would sit on a throne. But she could not have known that day that before he sat on that throne, he would hang on a cross. But we know. We know that Jesus loved us enough to lose his glory for us, to lose his honor for us, to lose his riches, his beauty, to lose his relationship with his father, to lose his very life for us. And when it comes home to you in more than just an intellectual, I heard it once in Sunday school kind of way, when it comes home to you in a personal way, all that Jesus Christ was willing to go through for you, you will know this is a Savior that you can safely surrender to. Until you and I do that, 
Christmas won't ever mean much of anything to us. But once we do, once we do what Mary did here, it will change everything. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how to keep Christmas well. As Charles Dickens said, may that be truly said of us and all of us. Merry Christmas, seven. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for a Savior that loved us enough that he was willing to lose so that we could gain what we've been looking for our whole lives by grace through faith in his name. Father, would you, would you cause this Christmas to be the Christmas that we see what we're really celebrating for in a new, life-changing, personal way. Help us to understand everything that you went through for us so that we could have a life-changing relationship with you. In the name of Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen. Thank you.